And I'm Anya, aka Strangely Literal, and this is a Shadows and Shamblers character discussion. Today we are going to be talking about the adaptation of Laura Moon and the choices Emily Browning, the writers, and showrunners made about her portrayal. Uh, personally, I think Laura was one of the biggest surprises for me uh, on the on this show. I love how complicated she is. Uh, I like all of the issues that this portrayal brings up. And I, I think it might be my favorite thing about season one on the whole. Uh, what did you think about Laura? I really like the decision to dive deeper into her character. I feel like the book version was pretty shallow and I didn't like necessarily just having a sort of empty space for the zombie wife. I don't know. I enjoy her story. I'm also pretty sympathetic to a lot of people who just don't like her. She's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's really interesting. I love how much she's getting people really talking about the portrayal of female characters and white female privilege and all of that. I feel like uh, she does what art is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Provoking the culture into like kind of self-examination, not just about stories, but about like the way that we deal with each other. And uh, yeah, I like that. That's true. I think Laura is a perfect example of how you can show a character's perspective and give the audience sympathy for someone without actually excusing their actions or having that sympathy mean that you have to like them necessarily. So I guess our plan for this episode is we're going to go over some general feedback and articles about Laura's character. Then we're going to kind of dive into this more specific conversation between, I think, a group of people who think Laura's awful and love it, and people who think Laura's awful and hate it. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we're going to talk a little bit about Essie um, and her relationship to Laura, go over some general feedback for episode seven, and then I guess we'll be done. Okay. Yeah, I feel like, sorry, normally I know we don't, like, lay out the structure, um, but this episode is a doozy, so. It's pretty weird. It's, yeah, it's a little bit different. So we'll try and keep everything on track, guys. So the first article that we have about uh, Laura's adaptation is an interview that uh, Christy Puchko did with Brian Fuller and Michael Green, where they kind of, like, gave some insight into their approach before even filming while they were still writing and adapting the book. And I pulled a quote here from Fuller, where he's talking about how, like, the relationship between Shadow and Laura and the difference in the way that they see their relationship, which kind of shed some light for me on the way that they wanted to adapt Laura. He says, uh, because... Shadow's got stars in his eyes for her. And you see the way that he looks at her. He's looking at an idealized version. But the audience is seeing who Laura really is and seeing her pain and her disconnection and her frustration. And Shadow can only see the romance. Their marriage is a form of worship. 
Shadow is someone who doesn't have much, and he makes a religion of his love for her because it provides focus. He gives up a criminal life and goes straight because he has a new ethic to live for, and it's to be worthy of her. I think that's um, interesting if you think about episode four, Get Gone, that gives you some insight into the way that they wrote Shadow's motivations, like the psychology behind it, and also the way that they knew they were going to be portraying an unsympathetic Laura, but the goals that they had in doing that to showcase her pain, her disconnection, her frustration. Do you think they succeeded in doing that? I think this quote is really insightful as far as like what they were going for. I think that last phrase is really key and I think would rub a lot of people the wrong way, but it's something that the show actually addresses in that conversation in episode four where Laura says, no, if anything, you're too good for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And that she sees herself much more clearly than Shadow does. I mean, what do you think Shadow really sees in her? Like, what is it her confidence or like, I mean, I guess we didn't really see that much of their early relationship except for the meet cute in the casino. I think it comes down to that meet cute in a way. And I know in in the episode four analysis, I really like went on and on and on about that meet cute. I think he just anticipated sitting down and robbing the casino from the table. And he never counted on this beautiful young woman having enough capability to catch him at what he was doing and then point out to him all the ways that it would fail. And I think that that charmed him. So it was sort of like, yeah, her capability and her being delightfully sassy about that capability, but also like kind to him, right? Because she could have just called the cops or Mm -hmm. the casino security or whatever and had him pulled out and probably arrested. And then that night, they have that strong physical connection with the nonverbal communication where she's slapping him and then he's flipping her over. I think for Shadow, he he had a stronger connection to her, maybe, than he... We don't know much about Shadow's backstory, but I feel like he is very much more of a loner before this. Because when they get married, nobody shows up on his side. You know what I mean? Like no yeah. family shows up. I didn't even think about that. He doesn't have anyone. And I think I think what they're saying here that he idolizes her is right, you know, in, the, in that regard. Yeah, that he basically like came up with this image of her based on the first time that they met and he still sees her through that lens. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I guess part of it too is that she seems like she's not being honest with him and she's hiding her depression and her other issues. Like she's letting him buy into the illusion to some extent until she comes to him with the plan to rob the casino. She's in a weird place where she doesn't dislike him. She probably likes him more than she's liked anybody else. So she's not going to directly push him away. Mm -hmm. But she also understands that what she has to give is less than what other people would have to give. I literally have a fly in this room buzzing around my head (laughs) as we're talking about Laura. (laughs) That is so appropriate. (laughs) Well, our other article talks about what you were just saying, actually. So there's an article from The Nerdist by Alicia Lutz 
um, titled Laura Moon is American God's Cautionary Tale of American Apathy. So it says, when she's approached by shadow, it is not butterflies and interest and excitement in this person that captures her attention. It's just that he's interested. At several points throughout the series, Laura's friend Audrey comments on how impressive Shadow's affection for her is, but never once does Laura seem to be filled with that first love excitement. She calls him puppy, not because he's cute and playful, but rather because he follows her around, waiting for whatever scraps she'll throw his way. It's a term of endearment that's really more one of pity. Her own apathy is also what gets her caught up with Robbie. She felt no wild love or even lust for her best friend's husband but just gave into the attention and lust that Robbie harbored for her. Yeah. I don't I don't know if I agree with Alicia's take, but I think it's interesting the idea that she's kind of like an emotional vampire or that she is like moved by other people's feelings because she seems to for some reason be numb. She doesn't really have any feelings of her own. She reflects back an imperfect version of whatever emotions people are giving her. Yeah. So like when Shadow really like loves her and is devoted to her, she reflects back a, a super imperfect version of that. When Robbie like wants a wild crazy love affair, she reflects back an imperfect version of that. Yeah, and she's got a low investment in all of those things. It feels like she could pull out of any of those relationships and not be very hurt by it. Yeah, it makes me think more about her relationship with Audrey. Like, to cheat on your best friend with her husband, like, to some extent, you can't really value that friendship that much either. Yeah, I just rewatched um, that episode recently, and... I was thinking that in the, I mean, in the bathroom scene, which is uh, hilarious, but there's the part where Audrey asks her, what's the last thing that you remember? And she kind of gets this concentrated look on her face. And then she's like, oh, yeah, sorry. So she didn't even go to Audrey's house to apologize or to, to find her friend. She just went there because she knew that she had the craft supplies that she needed to solve the problem of her arm being broken. Mm-hmm. And and then when she did deal with Audrey, she was like, hey, I have to come in there to use the bathroom. It wasn't like, you're really upset and I want to comfort you. It was like, it's all about her need and utility um, and not about the relationship that she has with her friend. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Also, complete side note. I kind of have a thing now, I think, for, like, like the overly well-stocked, ridiculous crafting room in fiction, because <laughs> it's used to great effect in Orphan Black, <laughs> with, uh. <laughs> with Allison's crafting room, <laughs> and now uh, Audrey's crafting room here. That's, like, my new, my new favorite trope is, like, creative use of uh, crafting supplies, for plot relevant reasons. I was watching that episode and my wife didn't watch with me the first time around because I was watching the screeners on my computer and she couldn't, you know, you can't see it. And so I've been watching on the TV on the rewatch and we got to that part and she was like, oh my God, who has this kind of craft table? This is nuts. <laughs> like, I know. It's also probably because like I have a thing for, for like, lots of brightly colored things being in like rainbow order. I was that kid who would like always be rearranging <laughs> my 256 box of crayons. 
Um, okay, but back to American Gods. <laughs> Pulling out of the craft room tangent. Uh, so we got some feedback from Becca Eller, who's at the underscore Becca Eller on Twitter, um, who said, Can we talk about adaptive choices? I am confused and delighted by what they have done with Laura. I love how they pulled her out of the story and explored her side of things. I always enjoyed her, but now I love her. I did hate losing the book story for Puppy. I have no idea why, but the book story really spoke to me. They did a beautiful job with Laura. They worked so hard to make a beautiful woman look gross, and that's really nice to see. Um, so I I don't remember the Puppy story from the book. Can you... Do you recall that? Mm-hmm. So in the book, you get from Shadow, he's just remembering things about Laura before she is resurrected, like during the funeral, I think. This is where it establishes that she calls him puppy. And the idea was that she wanted to get a dog. And he didn't. It was like a minor argument between them. Shadow said, there's nothing that a puppy can do that I can't do. Uh, <laughs> I, can, I can lick your nose. I can nuzzle your hand. And he like climbs up on top of her. And it, it kind of like turns into a sexual encounter. And that makes him like all the sadder when he's remembering this, um, you know, that she's gone and that that was her pet name for him. And so I think that it's a cute little story and it nicely establishes in the book that he's called a puppy so that later on when we meet her in the hotel room and she says, hello, puppy, then you're like, oh, I know exactly who this is and what's going on. I see. <laughs> I am really enjoying the mental image of Ricky Whittle trying to do that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure how well it would have fit into the episodes. Yeah. And I like what um, the, like that article said about the way that they use puppy in the show, where it's it's like a pathetic term that he takes it as this cute pet name and everybody else sees it as like ugh, he should be with somebody who appreciates him and doesn't treat him like a dog yeah so i like that contrast i i like what um becca's talking about here with the adaptive choices because laura is very different in the book and she's not very present in the book and i like to think that maybe all the stuff that we're seeing you could kind of imagine it still happening in the book because we don't see Mad Sweeney very much either. So it's not impossible in the book world that those two ran into each other and like had all of these crazy adventures that we just don't know about because we're pretty much tied to Shadow through the whole book. But I mean, even given that, like Laura is very, very different, right? Yeah. She's so odd in the book, but in a way that just seems to be simply emotionally disconnected. Like she doesn't know what's polite anymore. She seems to not be able to conjure up any empathy or think from other people's point of view. And so she says all kinds of rude, weird things, which is kind of funny, but the Laura in the show seems to be a more complete person, even more complete than when she was alive, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I also love the makeup work that they did with Laura Oh, yeah. Just throughout the show. It's so good. Yeah, I hope she gets more gross in the next season. Mm -hmm. I love it. Okay. Um, so next comment comes from 
at Gypsy Book Nerd on Twitter, who said, I adore what they've done with Sweeney. His dare I say remorse at Laura's death is fantastic. Laura is absolutely a horrible human being and does not, in theory, deserve Sweeney's regret and is not worth Shadow's time. But I appreciate Laura in the context of Mad Sweeney's arc. I think you were saying something about this in our episode seven, that Laura feels like a supporting character to Mad Sweeney's story. And it seems to be how she's taking it uh, as well. Um, But she likes it. And she says she's a horrible human being uh, who does not deserve anybody's affection like what do you think about that i mean yeah i think she's objectively a horrible human being i don't know i kind of like what she does structurally in the story beyond just mad sweeney's arc right because she really complicates the relationship between shadow and wednesday Mm -hmm. right like it makes the fact that wednesday engineered this whole thing and killed her off to get shadow as his bodyguard or helper or whatever like it makes him so much more sinister and calculating and like evil and manipulative Mm -hmm. i mean because like for all of the criticism that's being leveled against laura like i think you know uh it's not like wednesday is any better he's also like doesn't care about anybody except for himself is super manipulative is using people (laughs) Oh, no, he's terrible. Yeah, he's <laughs> I awful. like, yeah, I like the way that Laura makes that relationship between Wednesday and Shadow much messier and more complicated. And we'll get into it when we do our season one wrap up. But I kind of feel like Laura is a second protagonist in in the first season. She's kind of like, you know, like a lot of stories have an A and a B story where you'll follow the main characters and then mm-hmm. you'll have like a subset of characters that you follow their story. I feel like that is what Laura is in the first season. Um, starting with episode four, she has her own journey that she goes on and her own goals and, and all this stuff. And yeah. And Wednesday I think is her antagonist. I think it's, it's really interesting that they decided to make her so important in the story where in in the book she is important to the ending but everything up until that point she's really not that important and they've really made her essential like you say to the plot to the relationship between shadow and wednesday and what you're saying is really like more of a dramatic irony type of thing right like shadow doesn't understand what's going on with mr wednesday but we do like we see him Mm -hmm. for what he is because of laura's story but that's something that uh, is hidden from Shadow so far. So, yeah, it's it makes the story much more three-dimensional, her presence in it. Yeah. Okay, so um, at this point, I think we're going to shift uh, to thinking about Laura in terms of these two different perspectives. Um, so this is the Laura's awful and we love it, or Laura's awful and we hate it. And so I guess just to kind of try and summarize that um, the people who think that Laura is awful and love it are coming from the perspective of this is a type of female character that we don't usually get to see on TV. And she's sort of pushing the bounds of what's acceptable for female characters in terms of awfulness. 
And then from the other side, I think it's mostly a lot of women of color who look at her and just see the embodiment of white female privilege and just have no time for that. I have enough awful people in my life. I don't need it on my TV show as well. (laughs) Um, So one of the people who we've been following on Twitter a lot as far as uh, American Gods commentary goes is critic and writer Emily Steers. She is at Emily Steers. That's with two E's on Twitter. Um, And so we asked her to write something short, just sort of summarizing her perspective on Laura. Um, And thank you, Emily, for submitting that. So she says, like most people, I have complex feelings about Laura Moon. She is selfish and mean, sarcastic and cold, and that was all before she was a reanimated body. But I think much of the reasoning for her selfishness is ignored. In episode four, Get Gone, Laura's life prior to Shadow is revealed. She is depressed, lives alone with a cat, hates her job, attempts suicide. After Shadow and Laura have their meet cute, a lesser show would have said their marriage cured Laura of her depression and gave her life meaning. Instead, Laura remains in a walking fugue during and after their wedding. Laura's loneliness, alluded to in the fact that she lives in a little house her grandmother left her while her immediate family lives in a large mansion, has always been a part of her. So much so that Anubis tells her her afterlife is darkness because she believed in nothing. In a show about gods and the people who worship them, I think people have a hard time with a character, and specifically a woman, who is neither divine nor evil. Religion is predominantly about the struggle of the good versus the bad, and Laura lives in a limbo, a purgatory, of gray dullness. She spends her days both fearing death and wanting to die. American Gods is tackling two common beliefs held by many people. The not having faith makes you terrible, aka Laura, and being faithful makes you good. All the gods. Laura is faithless. She's focused on herself. She still doesn't really respect gods, but she's on a journey learning to care about others. Wednesday, on the other hand, has nothing but faith. He believes in all gods and their powers. And he's the most selfish character on the show, willing to sacrifice anyone and everyone, except for himself and his power, to reach his end. Laura, by and large, doesn't lie. She even tells Shadow that when she said she could wait for him, she'd hoped it was the truth. Wednesday, contrarily, does nothing but lie to get out of trouble or to manipulate his fellow gods and demigods into fighting for his cause. In the text of the book, Laura is loved by Shadow nearly unconditionally and is essentially a servant to the divine who only comes into herself and absolves her mistakes when she realizes how special Shadow is, both to her and to the world. There's no reason to believe that her storyline won't continue down that path in the future seasons of the show. And frankly, if it follows that exact line towards salvation, I think I might be a little bummed out. But for now, from my perspective, people hate Laura Moon because society expects women to be deferential and above all faithful in all meanings of the word. And Laura Moon just isn't. That's great. I love the part where she said that Laura is on a journey learning to care about others. I think that's really insightful and an excellent way to characterize her arc through the season, like as a protagonist, where she kind of starts in this place where she is not able to feel anything for some reason. She has this emotional numbness 
And then by the end, her friendship with Salim, where they're talking about, are you in love with God or do you love God? And she's trying to understand like his perspective. I feel like that's her trying to understand the feelings that she has for Shadow and how powerful they are. And her grief over losing her family that it seems like they didn't love her very much and it seems like she did not love them back. But she wants to go see them. She misses them. And I don't think that she understands why that is. And that's part of the reason why she has to go back to that hometown to unpack that. And yeah, the the idea that she's on this journey towards having emotions and understanding what that means and connecting with other people in the world on that level uh, is a really keen observation. I love that. Yeah. And she's starting to finally put other people's needs before her own. Mm hmm. Right now, it's it's mostly just Shadow, but I guess we'll kind of see where that goes. I think she puts Selim ahead. Like, she doesn't just use the cab, right? She she tricks Mad Sweeney and then tells him, you know, go get your man. Oh, yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I don't think pre-zombie Laura would have done that either. But at the same time, she's not losing that acerbic edge, right? Like, when that great moment where Mad Sweeney gives her back the coin and then she punches him in the face first thing. (laughs) And and says, get back in the truck and is honking the horn at him and stuff. She still has that hard edge to her. Yeah, and I guess this kind of goes back to, uh, to something that Lonnie always says, I think. It goes back to the idea that what makes characters really interesting is when you put them in a situation where they have a tough choice to make. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I really loved about Sweeney's arc this season is that it was all sort of building up to him being put in that situation where he had to make that decision about, do I put the coin back in her body and reanimate her? Or do I just take my lucky coin and split? And so... I don't think Laura has really been put in that situation yet where she has that key choice to make and she makes the choice that is the selfless choice. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Um, I'm also, so I'm curious to ask you, are you going to be bummed out if Laura goes towards salvation? (laughs) Um, I don't know if I would call what she does in the book salvation if the events play out the same i think that it will actually be far more emotionally impactful than it was in the book because i'm not gonna give any spoilers but really we don't get much of laura in the book until i'd say the final chapter or two chapters and the impact that the end of her story has comes primarily from what we get to see of her in those two chapters. And it's a little bit thin. I think it still works really nicely, Mm -hmm. um, but it's mostly informed by the way that shadow feels about her and not um, her actual character. So if they still go in that direction, I think it could be a really big deal. Would I be disappointed by it? I think it depends on the reasons why she does it. Okay. So our next article in that similar vein is called American Gods Has Made Laura Moon One of Its Most Compelling Characters by Esther Zuckerman on the AV Club. So at one point she gives a quote from Brian Fuller who says, 
we talked a lot about fidelity and we talked a lot about the judgment that we as audience members in reading the book felt about this is the woman that betrayed Shadow and he was damaged by it. But we wanted to see her through different eyes than Shadow's and so that required us to tell the totality of her tale. To go back before she met Shadow, to understand why she had the affair, and to illustrate what was so important to her about the relationship that she on one level didn't respect, but had a rationalization as to why. She wasn't comfortably numb. She was relatably numb. And then from Emily Browning, she said, um, with regards to taking the part or not, If you tell me that she's the heart and soul of the show, I'm walking away right now. They said to me, if anything, she's the spleen. And that sold it. <laughs> uh, for Browning, heart and soul turns into a pejorative when it's essentially code for the wife that acts as a grounding force. Yeah, that trope of Beauty and the Beast, the woman as civilizing force for male characters, right? Yeah. I like the point that Brian Fuller is making about her being relatably numb. That like, yes, Laura is a super extreme version of this but I think we can all relate at various points to feeling that sort of like numbness and apathy mm-hmm. to a lesser extent. And so like that's one of the things that fiction can do is sort of like dial things up to 11 to to help us make a point. Absolutely. And her her life is so empty, right? Like her she doesn't have a career that she loves. There's no strong relationships in her life. And so, therefore, she doesn't have any of these strong emotional connections. Like, even if you have a job that you love, you can understand, like, not having strong friendship or a strong romantic relationship with somebody. Or if you do have those things, you might understand the thing about the job or the thing about being in the same town where you grew up. And so, on some level, in some way, you'll be able to find a way into her experience and have a little bit of sympathy for her. And I just love the metaphor of uh, Laura as being the spleen (laughs) of the show. And I guess like, I don't know, thinking about the function that the spleen actually performs in the human body, it's like a filter and a place Mm -hmm. where like blood cells are recycled. So I don't know, maybe they didn't quite mean it that literally. I don't think she's really like a filtering or purifying mechanism (laughs) but just as far as like it just sounds gross like (laughs) (laughs) she's kind of full of poison and stuff right yeah okay i guess maybe that's where the metaphor works yeah yeah i'm not sure i knew that about the spleen going into this so it's always good to learn something yeah if there's one takeaway from this episode it's the function (laughs) of the spleen in the human body okay and then our final article uh, from the Laura's awesomely terrible camp comes from Lucy Bauer at the Mary Sue, um, and it's titled American God's Laura Moon is Awful, and That's a Good Thing. And she says, The thing that makes Laura's story really special? The series doesn't apologize for her awfulness. In many ways, she is fascinating because she is allowed to be terrible. As a character, Laura doesn't particularly need or want saving. She's selfish and self-loathing by turns, and she's not looking for redemption. She isn't really working on self-improvement. It's not even clear that she can be saved if such something like saving exists. And these are actually all fantastic things, because American Gods realizes something that too many other television properties ignore. 
We don't have to like Laura in order to appreciate her story. She's American God's most fascinating figure, precisely because the show is so willing to embrace the darker aspects of her personality. It seems important to note that Laura Moon isn't an evil person. She just isn't a particularly good one. That she's miserable is obvious, but the narrative doesn't ask us as viewers to accept her depression as an excuse for her actions. Instead, Laura just is who she is, a fully realized person, and that person is fairly unsympathetic. She's manipulative, reckless, and self-destructive, but she also has plenty of agency over her own life and the things she chooses to do, and she frequently chooses the worst possible path. What do you think about Laura as like the idea of an anti-hero, kind of like a Tony Soprano or like a Walter White or somebody like that? I have not watched either The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. How would you define anti-hero? Because it's like a word that I've heard used a lot, but it's not something that I think I like really could define. I guess the way that I'm using it is really more of like a character who is simultaneously the protagonist of the story, but is essentially like morally incorrect. A lot of people like try to characterize an anti-hero as somebody like maybe Wolverine from the X-Men to use like a more like pop culture example of somebody who's kind of a jerk, but he does heroic things. But the way that I'm using it is more in terms of like somebody who is kind of despicable, but they're in charge of their own story. Because this, that's what this article makes me think. She's not an evil person, she says, but she has full agency over herself. And I think that's an interesting idea because women never get the anti-hero role. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, and they so rarely get to be unapologetic in a human way. Mm -hmm. Like when you do see women being unapologetically bad, it's usually like in a somewhat superficial evil villain role, not in like a very human role. Yeah, they're Maleficent. They're the evil stepmother. Ursula, the sea monster, whatever. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely sympathetic to the idea that Laura is a specific type of character. You see it a lot more from male characters than you do from female characters, just being like kind of an asshole, emotionally unconnected, making bad decisions, entertaining to watch. <laughs> and like, that's a constellation that is like not that revolutionary or new or innovative as applied to male characters, but coming f from a female character is actually like pretty shocking. I think that it can also like engender the reaction that Fuller and Green seem to be aware of that it would just make you hate the character if you didn't have some way into her vulnerability. If you couldn't sympathize with her on a certain level, then you would just be like, oh, she's just awful. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Which I think they actually do with Mad Sweeney, like going into it, he seems like a big jerk. And then by the end, you're like, oh... He's a yeah. sad leprechaun. Yeah, sad leprechaun. And I don't think that if you tried to do that with a female character, I don't think you could pull it off. I think that the standards are higher for a female character by and large in the culture where if we don't like a female character starting out, if there's no way for us to sympathize with her, then she's going to be cast in that Maleficent role, in that Ursula role, and we're never going to let her get out of that. She's just going to be the villain in our minds no matter how sympathetic we make her afterwards. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think you could do the Sweeney thing um, with Laura. And what you're saying is also interesting in terms of the book, because I feel like that's what Neil Gaiman did when he created her character in the book. She's just, if you just take male characteristics and just cast them as a girl, that's what she is. Like, she's super strong. She's, like, unkillable. She's kind of like, you know, like a superhero, like we said before. Mm-hmm. And um, she doesn't care about other people. It's like she's emotionally disconnected and she's like on this loner journey in the book. She's like physically unappealing. She's not sexy. Like anything that would be typically female, she's just like the opposite turned inside out. But it's very, very flat because of that. Like she's not a person. She's just like a trope turned inside out. But in the show, they really took the time to flesh her out. And I think using this anti-hero, I, I guess... When I'm talking about anti-hero, the big thing about it is that you care about the anti-hero. You can kind of see the world from their perspective, even if you don't agree with like Tony Soprano is a terrible, terrible person. But you like when he sits down and sobs because of the abuse that he suffered from his mother, you're like, oh, yeah, I get that. I feel bad for Tony right now. And then Tony goes out and like murders his friend or something like that. And you're like, Tony, that's not cool, man. You're like, you can't do that. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing with Laura. Like, you know, she's a big jerk to Mad Sweeney. All he wants is his coin back. But we feel for her in that moment where she kisses Shadow and her heart beats. Yeah. Sorry, I'm still I'm <laughs> I'm still just thinking about the fact that you said that the show flushed her out. yes but i promise i was paying attention to the rest of it too (laughs) more my unintentional puns that i always do okay so we've talked for quite a bit about all of the ways in which laura is a really interesting character and how a lot of people really like her um but there's also been a ton of stuff written about why people hate Laura. And so we really wanted to uh, both share that perspective and try to engage with that. The first article we have is from our favorite writer over at Black Girl Nerds, Janita Davis. Uh, And the title of the article, very appropriate, Why We Still Hate Laura Moon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This whole thing is great. I couldn't read it all. um, So I just pulled out a little bit. um, But she says... Laura is a garbage person when she is alive, and even more pathetic dead. (laughs) Off to a great start. Um, (laughs) Laura was broken long before Shadow and her zombification. She is not afraid to flash her privilege to get a pass in the face of danger. She's the only main character in the book who is void of belief. I believe this is the reason for her depression and dissatisfaction. I also believe that this is the only way she would think saying fuck you to Anubis would get her a pass on death. Laura exerts her white privilege over someone who she saw as just another black man sent to determine the direction of her life. Why would she honor Anubis when she couldn't even honor Shadow by staying faithful while he was in prison? The last place that made me understand Laura was the bathroom scene. This girl waltzes into her friend Audrey's home, scares said friend, and then proceeds to tone police the friend while taking a shit in the woman's bathroom. Let's not forget that Laura cheated with and killed Audrey's husband. Duly guilty, you'd think the woman would be humbler in her speaking with Audrey. But no. Yes, she saved Shadow from the lynching, 
and if the book is an indicator from a few other scrapes. However, she is the one who put the man in the position to be dependent on the gods. Remember, she initiated the robbery. Yes, Shadow still loves her after finding out about her death. Unfortunately, Shadow is grieving and can't be trusted. And Laura's love is probably the luck of the coin compelling her to be there for Shadow. Her love of him is more an infatuation of the light he generates in her world full of dull grayness. That's so great. Yeah. <laughs> what I think uh, a lot of this, I think, really meshes with Fuller's description of um, Shadow's perspective is not to be trusted. Right. Either because he's grieving or because he just can't see Laura for who she really is. Which is an emotionally complicated way to tell a story where we're so deeply in his POV that we see the world the way that he sees it. And then we get to see Laura the way that she sees herself and then kind of find our balance in between those two perspectives. You don't see a lot of shows doing that, especially in only eight episodes. We really get this complicated picture of both Shadow and Laura based on like their perspective on their relationship. Um, what do you think about this? The way that she talks about white privilege and uh, Anubis. Yeah, I think it's interesting and something that I didn't see myself the first time through, but that Laura is in an interesting place as a white woman. And it seems like most of the people who she ends up getting into altercations with are black men. And so it is like this weird power dynamic right i mean yeah. i guess the other person who she kind of fucks over is robbie but between like anubis and shadow she is not necessarily respecting them the way that they sh arguably should be respected as like a husband in terms of fidelity for shadow and then anubis as a god and i think in this article or maybe it was in a different article um, by Janita, um, talks about uh, comparing the interaction with Anubis between Laura and Mrs. Fadil. And you see Mrs. Fadil as much more reverential towards mm. Anubis and giving him the worship that he arguably deserves as a god. Yeah, that's interesting to compare those, those two interactions with Anubis. Because I think her idea here is that she says she'll flash her privilege to get a pass in the face of danger. And we'll talk about this idea more with Essie, you know, who's played by the same actress. So yeah. I think that the show is aware of that, right? If say we compare this to Bilquis and the way that she interacts with the technical boy or with uh, the white guy that she sleeps with, even though with the white guy that she sleeps with, she's in control of that situation for the most part. She doesn't have any command or privilege especially when you compare it with her temple worship scene. Well, with the scene with the 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 older gentleman who she's dating, like like not only is she not sort of like exerting privilege over him, but like he says some pretty shitty stuff to her and she yeah. just takes it because mm -hmm. she needs him to cooperate to get his worship and then to to swallow him. Yeah. Um, but that that line about you're the prettiest thing that I have ever gotten to touch for free. Like, ugh. <laughs> I mean, like, like on the one hand, part of me is like, I maybe they threw that line in there because in the book, she is actually a prostitute. And so they were trying to like super emphasize 
not a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there is a way to do that that wasn't so ooky. Oh, yeah. It throws me out every time that he says that. Yeah, like, by the way, sometimes I pay for sex and that's how I'm thinking about this right now as a transaction. Yeah, not, not romantic. That's the strangely literal version of that line of dialogue. <laughs> but it's interesting to compare that like you say, um, with privilege, I don't think she would have put up with that from like the weird crown in his head guy. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. She is in a position where she doesn't have any choices. This guy, this white guy can say anything that he wants to her. And Laura does kind of have all the power in the relationship when they're in Indiana. She's the one who has a house. Uh, Shadow doesn't have anywhere else to stay, it seems like. He doesn't have a job. She provides him with a job through her friends. I think that gives her a lot of power in the relationship. She's the one who decides that they're going to rob the casino, and it kind of doesn't matter what Shadow thinks. She dominates him. I mean, except, okay, I'm like somewhat on board with that, but I feel like it's worth pointing out that it was Shadow's idea originally. Like, I think he planted the seed. I don't think she would have come up with the idea to rob the casino if that hadn't literally been how they met. And even if she had come up with the idea, I don't think she would have asked him to do that if it hadn't been, again, how they actually met. Right. But it also makes me think, okay, so they they get the deal, right, where they talk to some lawyer and he said- Adelstein? You know, yeah. Sorry, I just rewatched it like a couple days ago. <laughs> okay. And like- <laughs> You'll go to jail for this long, whatever. It seems to me like whoever is prosecuting doesn't know that she was in on it. Because why isn't she being punished at all? And does she still have the job at the casino? It seems like it. Like afterwards, she's still in the uniform. So there's no way that they would continue to employ her if they knew that she was involved. So she didn't even lose her job over what happened to Shadow. Although actually, I feel like that's a flaw in world building because can Mm -hmm. you really imagine that like someone would get arrested trying to rob a casino and be married legally (laughs) to someone who worked at that casino and then that person would not, unless it's like some actual country fried police, like I feel like there's no excuse for not making that connection. Well, Unless your husband is black. Oh, shit. You know, it's just like, hey, he's a criminal, right? What am I going to do about it? And I feel like it is a little bit of a commentary on that. I don't know if it's intentional that that's there, but I definitely see what Janita's saying, that Laura has a lot of privilege invested uh, in her character and the way that she interacts with people. I don't know if I buy it with Anubis I feel like she's very hostile because she is so out of her depth. She didn't expect there to be an afterlife, and she's very upset at how all of it's going. I don't know if it's about Anubis being black, the way that she reacts to him, but I respect the read on that, that yeah. she has. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. I feel like this is one of those like super messy, intersectional areas where it's like, you, if you're creating this asshole white woman character and like one of her key traits is that she doesn't take shit from anybody and that but then she's interacting with people who are black men then like you're kind of in a weird place Mm -hmm. it's hard to to keep that characterization consistent in a way that isn't exerting some sort of appearance of privilege or actual privilege depending on how you see it yeah i mean i guess that's the thing about privilege right is that it's something that you carry with you 
all the time into every interaction, whether you're aware of it or not. Yeah, it's kind of invisible. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe Laura is an asshole in a very specific way that like only a white woman could be. And so I guess I definitely see it from that perspective. Okay, yeah. So next up, uh, this isn't really an article, but we have a, a tweet storm from Rebecca Theodore, who on Twitter is at filmfatal underscore NYC. Uh, she's a film TV contributor for Entertainment Weekly, Forbes, New York Times, Roger Ebert, The Urban Daily. Uh, on June 5th, she uh, said, I have a few words about the conversation surrounding Laura Moon's character on American Gods. One, we can talk about the double standards surrounding quote-unquote unlikable women characters. They tend to be more reviled than unlikable men. Two, I'm also going to say this, all caps, it is not anti-feminist to unpack the unlikable characteristics of these female characters. If you can't address how Laura Moon weaponizes her white womanhood, you are not equipped to do honest feminist critique. Tell a friend. <laughs> Three, as a black woman, Laura Moon's character is not new to me. We deal with women like this every day at work and on social media. So I'm certainly not going to petition for her character to be nicer, quote unquote. Laura Moon is an awful and unlikable character, and that's fine. This makes me think of, like she says, we deal with women like this every day at work and on social media. And I think that's that's why you're seeing a lot of women of color who are film critics and TV critics react this way to Laura, I think, because they have to overcome this extra level of being dismissed that, you know, like your average woman who's writing about these critiques has to grapple with gender bias. But then on top of that, they're having to deal with uh, race bias. If all of your interactions all day, every day are a bunch of white women disagreeing with you, when you see a disagreeable white woman, this is going to be the thing that you like. You're like, yes, I recognize this, right? We see Laura as more of a jerk who, you know, just a jerk character who happens to be female. And they're like, no, this is a specific thing that I have to deal with every day. And you don't understand what it's like. Yeah, I've been thinking about the the word that she uses, like weaponizing the white womanhood. Mm -hmm. And like... To a certain extent, I'm a little bit confused by it because I think of weapon as being something that you like intentionally wield to hurt people. And I don't really see Laura as doing that. I mean, she's intentionally an asshole, but I don't see her as like intentionally using her whiteness to wound people. If you sort of relax that definition a little bit and think of weapon as just like something that you can use to injure people without really noticing like she comes up with this plan that gets her black husband sent to jail that is going to irrevocably change his life in ways that she could never experience right like I, there was some mm -hmm. study that came out that i think said that like if you're a white felon your like resume or your like job prospects are as good as a black non-felon. <laughs> oh wow. So it's like it's like white people who aren't felons and then white felons and regular non-felon black people are on the same level. And then if you're a black man with a criminal record, you're like not even in the same ballpark. So like mm -hmm. she was feeling depressed and unfulfilled and she needed to do this thing 
to like get some excitement in her life and she was just like super not thinking about the consequences for Shadow and how that would affect him. Like not even just going to jail for three years, but like his prospects for like being able to earn a livelihood for literally the rest of his life. You know, assuming whether things work out between them or not, you know, like most marriages and a divorce, if he ends out in his own, like that felony conviction is going to stick with him for the rest of his life. I think if you if you see white womanhood as a weapon that is wielded carelessly and without regard for others, as opposed to like something intentional, then I'm like totally on board with that and that view of Laura. I agree with that. It's not so intentional with her. She's not like wielding her race. But I do think that's something that does happen, you know, to um, to women of color who are living in this intellectual space where every possible advantage is being leveraged in everybody's career to try and get attention. It's kind of a high ground, like you're saying, socially. Yeah. Well, and that's that's what makes the concept of privilege so interesting is that like you don't have to be aware of it right. to use it or to like have it be totally influencing everything about your life. And that's one of the ways in which American Gods is like so powerful as a piece of art turning a lens on the society of modern America, right? Like you said, like she and Shadow came up with this plan together. It should be super obvious that she's involved. She fucking works there. And right. yet <laughs> the DA or whatever, they're so willing to like just throw a black man in jail and like not even look at her. You know, she had to she had to go to them and see like, well, like, could I go to jail? Like, will you be easier on my husband if I do this? And then like in the end, but it was like a choice for her whether or not to go to jail. And like Shadow never got that choice. And he literally says that to her in the episode, like when they're out in the parking lot, he says, you know, like, you should be my inside man because nobody suspects people who look like you. Yeah, yeah, you're t totally right. It's textual. And to a certain extent, I feel like like Shadow even buys into it himself, right? Because he says, I can take it um, when she's mm -hmm. offering to go to jail for him. He's like, I can survive this. And it's hard to know like how much of that is just him feeling protective as a husband versus him seeing himself as a black man and as someone who like even belongs in that environment. Whereas, like, he can't even imagine her there. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so we also got some feedback from H. Khan at Spanavaz on Twitter, who says, There may be some legit criticism of how race plays in the sympathy Laura may get from some quarters, but let's not overlook that she is also the target of much hatred and derision as well. It is curious, though, how some can point the finger at Laura's white privilege without also pointing out how Sweeney can easily be looked at like some romantic figure. No black male character, no matter how charming, would be viewed in such a way if he was so blatantly sexist, if he was as prone to referring to women in the most vile of ways, if he had physically assaulted a tiny woman before he was aware that she could defend himself. I love Sweeney, but he gets the breaks that white dudes have always gotten from viewers in terms of perception. And yeah. that is, like, such a target spot on criticism yeah that's great yeah <clears throat> and that's the other side of of privilege right like where 
you can say that privilege is kind of invisible and that it can be used against people whether you mean for it to or not. But when you're on the other side of privilege, it's kind of impossible to not see it everywhere, I think. Yeah. And so this is something that would never even occur to us because we don't have to deal with it. But for H. Khan, like if you read his Twitter thread, this is what he does. He he critiques all kinds of entertainment. And, so, and it's a if you go to at Spawn of Oz, he's um, he's really on point all the time in his criticism, I think, uh, in this way. And he is constantly pointing out to people like, check your privilege, like think about these things from somebody else's perspective when you when you do them. Yeah, I was just thinking about, too, how um, uh, episode four, Get Gone, how like carefully we sort of scrutinize Shadow's behavior in the parking lot where like he sort of mm-hmm. like jumps out of nowhere and then like tries to block her getting into the car door. And all of that is like so subtle compared to what Mad Sweeney uh, does to Laura or tries to do to Laura. And he grabs her by the throat. Yeah. Yeah. He literally chokes her and like picks her up off the ground so he can look down her throat. And then he doesn't know that she can flick him across the room. That's not something he could do when he had the coin, presumably. Yeah. And I think definitely from a lot of the feedback that we got, people really love Mad Sweeney and do kind of see this. There's a platonic relationship between those two characters, but there's also, I'm sure there's a lot of shippers. And and if it was Mr. Nancy in that role or something else, I wonder if it would be the same. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Okay. So finally, um, we're going to talk about Essie. This is another article by Junita Davis, again, at Black Girl Nerds, um, and the title is American Gods Gives Us a Tale of White Female Privilege. And so she says, The use of this storytelling did evoke a little sympathy in me for Essie. Parentheses, I still hate Laura Moon. However, (laughs) I had to stop myself short. It was a trap. American Gods don't play with our sympathies for entertainment. There's a lesson here. That lesson is about privilege. American Gods shows a white man putting down his tool and walking off the plantation. We all know how this went down for black people. Um, And then she does a comparison with the prologue from episode two with Mr. Nancy and the slave revolt on the ship. And if people are like wondering what she's talking about, with the white man walking off, she means like the um, transportation sentence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And somebody serves it and then they get to leave and just become a citizen of America. As opposed to hereditary slavery. That was one of the really key things about black chattel slavery in the United States that made it so fundamentally different from all of the other types of slavery and like white servitude that preceded it was the hereditary nature of it, because even if a white person was slave for life, their children were never also slaves um, and also considered property. Their children were considered free. And the first black slaves from Africa were actually also treated the same way. The African slaves could earn their freedom and their children were also considered free. Um, But then very quickly... Slavery became hereditary, where not only were you, if you were African, you were enslaved for life, and your children were also enslaved for life. Yep. So, so Janita continues, Meanwhile, 
back at the BET version of transportation that we all know as slavery, the women who are found attractive by the captain or his crew or the dude in the kitchen washing dishes is forced to give up her body. She is raped and repeatedly. No one puts a ring on it when they get to shore. No one brings her home and offers his wealth to her. Pleading the belly while black did not exempt you from the shackle, the rape, or the violence. Essie becomes a wet nurse to the tobacco farming family, but she is nothing like a mammy. And then referring to the music that's overplaying the whole episode, she says, The light, uplifting melody is in stark comparison to the story being told. It's as if the show is saying, This looks a lot worse than it really is. When we go back to the slave ship Mr. Nancy destroyed, we see that things could have been a hell of a lot worse. Essie could have been a black woman. Mm. Um, yeah, Janita just did a really good job putting into words some of the things that I was thinking after watching this episode. And I think that are particularly emphasized by the fact that Essie's like final landing place, her safe home, is actually a plantation full of enslaved back black people. Um, and I think I said this before, if you look at the episode alone as a white person, like you might not necessarily notice that. You might just see it as like background detail. But I think in the context of the whole show that is clearly like very racially conscious and thinking about slavery and what it means to American identity and the opportunities that people are given that like that's done on purpose even though that episode doesn't really linger on the slaves themselves because of Mr. Nancy's prologue you have to be thinking about it when you see them in the background she lands as a slave owner that's like her reward for yeah, yeah for everything that she does uh in terms of her religious devotion she gets to be a slave owner at the end it's interesting, right, to have Emily Browning in that role and also playing the role of Laura, who was married to Shadow. And like I said before, was the one who had the house, the job, the, you know, the future, the friends, the connections, and that she kind of controlled Shadow and treated him like a puppy. And then to link her up with Essie in that way where she's literally a slave owner. I, d I don't think you can avoid the comparison. It's not, that's really not digging too deep yeah. to, to make that connection that the show is, is kind of pointing at uh, some white privilege. And it's, yeah, I hadn't thought about it when she says she's nothing like a mammy, but if you change Essie's race, yeah, no, ma no matter how powerful the god is that she would be serving in that situation, I just feel like there would be no realistic way for a black woman to become, you know, like to enter into that position that Essie lands at the end of that story. And that's worth pointing out. Like not even necessarily as a slave owner, but just like as a free woman, like it's difficult to imagine that or Im impossible. Okay, so we have a couple more bits of listener feedback. Nathan wrote to us and said, I'm writing to share an observation about the Laura-Essie connection. They seem to represent the two ends of the spectrum of belief. Essie believes fully and unquestioningly in the fair folk, and even when she lapses in her practices, it's not due to a lost belief, but rather to being distracted by earthly concerns. 
Laura believes in nothing, or so she says. But when she asked Salim about whether he loves his God or is in love with his God, I took that as her trying to understand this new feeling that she never really experienced when she was alive. Her love towards Shadow has been totally altered by this experience, and I think she's just now realizing what the word love is meant to signify. An emotion that she was disconnected from in her old life. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit earlier, that mm-hmm. that idea that her journey is an emotional like coming of age, kind of, where she's becoming more fully connected with the people around her and that Salim plays an important role in that. And, you know, looking at all this stuff, like through this racially privileged lens, I think that you could point to her relationship with Salim as kind of a counter argument against the idea of her weaponizing white privilege or maybe her arcing out of it possibly. Um, Salim is of course a, a person of color. He's, um, a significant minority in that he's Muslim and Arab and she doesn't ever treat him badly. Yeah. Uh, She's always friendly with him and she doesn't take him for granted um, or do any, she never like stabs him in the back for her own benefit or anything. So that seems like a really genuine friendship. I'm trying to think if she feels that way with anybody else. I mean, Audrey a little bit, but we've talked about how that friendship is kind of, broken in a weird way yeah this makes me think um about something that i feel like we kind of touched on but didn't really talk about and that's the role of mental illness in laura like is Mm -hmm. her inability to feel love before she died and versus like the strength of feelings that she has after she's resurrected like how much of that is some sort of like supernatural extra power Versus, like, if what she had was a mental illness, like, some sort of chemical imbalance in her brain that had left her depressed, has being dead just cured that? Now she's just operating in, like, a quote-unquote normal or, like, neurotypical way? Yeah, that's interesting. If, like, being resurrected sort of, like, gets rid of all of the diseases that you would have had before um, and replaces them with, like, a different kind of decaying process. Um, And I guess one of the other main controversies that we haven't talked about in this episode so far about Laura has to do with whether or not she's committing suicide. So I know I think, I know a lot of people have been really angry at other people who say that she's not necessarily committing suicide and that it's like so obvious, you know, Mm -hmm. if you look at the can, it says kills on contact I don't know, like, my perspective on it, I think, is that it's hard to know someone's intentions. I mean, I think clearly she was risking a lot, and she didn't really care whether she died or not. But I see getting in the hot tub with a bug spray as equivalent to cutting. Like, it's clearly self-harm, and it clearly is sort of towing that line with suicide, but a ton of people will cut themselves and... It's not actual intentional suicide yet. Like, maybe it could get that way. I don't think it's actually obvious that her intention was to die. Yeah, and it's. I think it's also tied to her sense of loneliness. Like, right before she does that, she's eating the, you know, the one egg by herself 
in her house that's completely empty except for the cat. Um, we get a repeat of that scene when she's in the cab with Salim and Mad Sweeney. She's kind of looking out the window like Mad Sweeney and Salim are fighting with each other. And I think she feels very alone in that moment. Like Shadow has rejected her. She doesn't know where she's going or what's next. And then she looks out the window and imagines being back in that hot tub with the uh, with the spray in her face. And then it's right after that that she makes the connection with Salim. Yeah. So I don't know that it's necessarily, like you say, I don't know that it's about killing yourself, but it's certainly connected with her feeling of loneliness, of isolation. Yeah. Yeah. She has the potential to arc out of that now where maybe she didn't before because she wasn't neurotypical. Um, You know, like in the same way that now she can lift up a truck, like maybe... Maybe her mind is healthier in the same way that her body is like supernaturally strong. Yeah, I yeah, I guess that's kind of that's the question that I was getting at. Like, is her mental health a superpower, or is it just her being healed back up to normal? I don't know. You know, I think we could have an answer to that if we ever get a situation where she doesn't need the coin anymore. Oh, like it's. It's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I think. yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I guess I guess sort of just going back to the suicide one last time. I feel like if Laura's intention was to commit suicide and she wanted to die, then that scene in the hot tub represents like a failure. Right. And I feel like that's not how the show presents it. I feel like it presents it as kind of like this constellation of destructive behavior. The, the show textually connects it to that moment in the cab. And I think that she's not thinking about killing herself because, I mean, it's not possible, right? Yeah. At that point. So it's about something else. I think it's a, about a lack of emotional connection and feeling lonely. Or that's what's implied anyway, I think. Okay. Um Sweet so another tweet from Sarah Thomas at not sailing alone on Twitter um, regarding episode seven with Essie and Mad Sweeney. She says, uh, the accents are no. When Pablo and Emily are in jail, it's the absolute worst. I always liked how modern Mad Sweeney has a blended accent that works well. Uh, I'm really That's terrible funny. at accents, so I didn't really notice anything. <laughs> But I totally buy that. So I was looking up more about Pablo. I think I have been saying Schreiber, but I think I heard somewhere else that it's Schreiber. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I was looking up about Pablo, uh, and I had just assumed that he was like Argentine or something because he's like a Spanish first name and a German last name. Uh-huh. Uh Turns out he's American Canadian and named after the poet Pablo Neruda. So. Oh, wow. No Hispanic heritage at all. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I've I've rewatched that episode many, many times. And I have noticed in that scene after she said that, that his accent is kind of off. Yeah. I read, I read a, a, an article with him, like an interview where he talks about his accent work. We're going to talk about the, the article in our next episode, um, but not that specific part, but the guy that he was listening to primarily to get the native Irish accent was an MMA fighter. So maybe, yeah, (laughs) which is interesting, but maybe not the guy to go to for 
an authentic like 1870s accent or whatever it was maybe maybe it didn't hit sarah quite right okay so in our episode on episode seven we talked about how we really loved uh the actress who played uh essie's grandma when she was a little girl and then also older essie um but we couldn't find out who she was and two people very kindly um let us know so cassie mack on twitter at m underscore the underscore beastie and uh kate met who's at k8 met on twitter um pointed out that she is played by oh boy i didn't actually Good think luck. about pronouncing that let's see <laughs> fianula we'll go with that um nice she is played by fianula flanagan um and cassie mack also pointed out that she loved her as eloise hawking on the show lost So thank you guys for letting us know. Um, So before we leave you today, we want to share that we have a new show. Um, So our new show is called Hallowed Ground Storycast, and it's going to be a once a month show all about our appreciation and love for the power of story. Each episode, we're going to dive into a story doing our typical story analysis, but also emphasizing what it means to us and how it's either affected our lives or the way that we look at story. You can subscribe to our episode zero right now so you'll be ready for our first episode about Buffy the Vampire Slayer that's going to drop on September 1st. Um, So you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and all of the podcast apps that steal their data from iTunes. (laughs) Our our Twitter is at HGStoryCast, or you can find our website at www.HGStoryCast.com. And with that, I'm Anya, a.k.a. Strangely Literal, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at ChipperAllen. You can follow the show on Twitter at ShadowShambler, and visit our website at ShadowsAndShamblers.com. We talked about some difficult topics today, and we probably made some mistakes. Um, so as always, if you have comments, please send us a message. We're interested in engaging critically with the show, and that includes being open to criticism about the discussions that we have here. You can visit shadowsandshamblers.com contact, or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. And make sure and tune in. In a week or two, we will have our final episode for season one, where we are going to wrap up all of the story and we're going to give you all of our thoughts and analysis on season one as a whole. Share alike. License.